You're going to love this. Just love it. Stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, 99.5 FM Ridgecrest in China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. And coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, Muckraker, all-around swell fellow, here with you for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we like to call the Brad uh, the Bradcast. <laughs> don't don't already laugh at me. De- <laughs> uh, here alongside with me, of course, our producer uh, Desi Doyen. Hi, Des. Hi. Um, all right, we got a lot to cover today. As usual, the uh, started well, <laughs> the New York Times. The New York Times not only uh, they blew it again. That's it. End of show. They blew it again. New York Times screwed up. The New York Times not only got a really, a really important story completely wrong about Hillary Clinton and her emails claiming that she was the subject of a criminal inquiry by the Department of Justice. Uh, they also completely screwed up the correction to that story when it turned out, of course, that the inquiry wasn't criminal, nor was it even of Hillary Clinton at all. So the New York Times completely botched it once again, and they've got a history of this, uh, a long history of this, from the Iraq War uh, to the Acorn Pimp scam that they fell for. Folks who have read Bradblog.com for years know how we covered that story, how we revealed how Uh, It was a complete scam by this guy, James O'Keefe and Andrew Breitbart, who is still dead, by the way, as I understand it. Uh, They completely screwed up that story. It was uh, phony tapes and the New York Times reported it as if they weren't phony. And I had to pretty much go to battle with them for months and months back in uh, 2010 showing how that they had completely gotten it wrong, and eventually they ended up correcting it. But by then, the damage was done. And now this, and now this story on Hillary Clinton. And each time, these huge stories, these huge stories that the the New York Times, the paper of record in this country, the paper of record got the story completely wrong for history. And each time, these were stories that adversely hurt Democrats or the Democratic Party, or at least the interests of uh, Democrats and progressives. 
Why is it always uh, Democrats who, uh, are, you know, get hurt by these stories, get hurt by these errors? And really, are they errors at all? Or is there something else at work here? We'll be speaking with Eric Bollert of Media Matters about the specifics of this case in a little bit and the history of the New York Times making these mistakes, which always seem to somehow help Republicans. Imagine that. Also, uh, a little bit later in the show, our Green News Report, our latest Green News Report with uh, with Desi Doyen as uh, activists in Portland are suspending themselves from uh, from a bridge uh, to stop Arctic drilling uh, by Shell Oil. And, and I kind of laugh because I know what it was that you were working on when you were working on that story, how you had originally planned to say <laughs> yes. that activists hanged themselves from a bridge. Yeah, it took me a second. When I said protest. it out loud, I went, oh, wait, that might give the wrong impression. Yeah, that's the wrong impression. They didn't hang themselves. No, they they suspended themselves. Correct, correct. <laughs> so we'll be talking about the specifics on that in a little bit, uh, as well as a wildfire uh, season just exploding across the West and, frankly, across the world, according to a new study. Uh, and this story you, you've you probably heard of, uh, we get to cover it briefly a little bit later in the Green News report, uh, the killing of Cecil the lion in uh, Zimbabwe. Yeah, by that dentist from Montana. No, it's from uh, isn't it Wisconsin, um, uh, Minnesota. Sorry. sorry, Minnesota. Minnesota. All right. Yeah. Um, Sad. Minnesota dentist uh, who killed this uh, beloved lion. Yeah. And one of the things that we'll we'll talk about, but we don't have time to go into detail, so we can do it very quickly here. The um, this idea that I've I've heard people talk about. That this, these big game hunts, these safaris that rich people like this dentist from either Montana or Minnesota, Minnesota. Or Wisconsin, <laughs> wherever he's from, that he uh, th- that this somehow is good for conservation, good for these big animals to charge these rich guys a whole bunch of money to go out and and shoot them with a crossbow or a bow and arrow or a rifle or however the hell they do. I don't understand. How does killing these big game actually help? Uh, the big game and help the conservation a- effort. Well, it depends on where it's done, but in Zimbabwe, what they do is they hand out permits to hunt these big game animals, and the country charges a lot of money. Uh, this dentist paid $50,000 about for the privilege of getting a permit to kill a lion, and then that money, that revenue, is used toward conservation, conservation. programs. So, you know, they'll sacrifice one animal in order to try to have the kind of revenue to save the rest of the animals or other animals, because frankly, these charismatic big game animals are worth more dead than alive. Well, they're, if they're going extinct, uh, th- they won't be worth anything to anybody this once is they're true. gone. So, and that's, these are endangered uh, animals. And, of course, it's, you know, horribly brutal. I mean, in this case, the guy, you know, he skins the, the Oh, the, he, the left, lion, he left him there head. to rot, essentially. Just took the, the trophy parts and left him there to, and left the body there, the carcass there God, to rot. So, a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation for these countries that don't have the kind of money that they need to, uh, to help protect and preserve their natural heritage and and it gets into you know other you know colonialism and imperialism where you have you know white people coming in and basically extracting resources from uh, black people in Africa and and so it's it's it has a it has a very long and uh, troubled history and there's a lot of issues that go along with the and regulation if you have to of count, this. if you have to count on rich jerks 
you know, the, taking the money from rich jerks so you can uh, uh, try to save your endangered species for the entire world. I don't know. Something terribly wrong with that system. Yeah, it seems to there me. is. And, definitely. And, and, you know, I don't care if it brings in money. Something is terribly out of whack, out of balance. If we're, you know, saying, OK, we'll allow people to kill them in order to save, to save the rest. Yeah. It just makes no sense to me. It's um, a heartbreaking situation. It is. So more on that a little bit later in the Green News Report. It's also... Uh, this week, actually today, in fact, uh, the 50th anniversary of the program that stole our American freedoms and ruined the entire country and socialized medicine and ruined uh, everything in America as we know it. At least at least that's what we were told back in the 60s. Uh, and we got a lot of anniversaries, by the way, this week. Next week is the Voting Rights, 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which ironically... August 6th takes place on the same day of the first Republican debate of the 2016 presidential election. So as they are celebrating in their debate uh, voter suppression around the country, it is the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. That's oh, the next irony. Week. Yes, that's next week. Uh, this week, though, uh, it's the 50th anniversary of Medicare. And one of the most widely recognized, frankly, among Democrats and Republicans alike, widely recognized as one of the most successful social programs, social welfare programs uh, in the history of the country, perhaps in the history of the world. Prior to the enactment of Medicare, uh, just 54 percent of Americans 65 and older had health insurance to cover hospital expenses. Uh, and private insurance companies regularly terminated coverage for older customers. Sound familiar? This was back prior to passage of Medicare. Uh, they, these older customers, frankly, they would they would have they had this nasty habit of getting old and then getting sick. And that was very expensive for private insurance companies. They didn't the, like having to pay for that stuff. For the free market. That's right. And so they would just cut them off. Oh, you're too old. You're, you're getting uh, too sick too often. We'd let you go. And that's what they did. And, of course, that's what private insurance companies continued to do up until 2010 and the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare, no matter what you like or don't like about it, this, this is just a fact. They can no longer do that. They can no longer terminate anybody just because they're ill, just because they had the temerity to get sick. But back in, uh, you know, before uh, 1965, before the passage of the Medicare, they could actually terminate anyone just because they were old. And uh, in fact, 54 percent of Americans 65 and over did not uh, well, actually only 54 percent had health insurance. Forty six percent did not and could not get any because they were too old or too sick. And so they would just uh, die. They would just die in poverty. They would go bankrupt. And uh, that's what Medicare was meant to fix. And in fact, it worked wildly successful. As um, John Schwartz points out today over at The Intercept, within three years of Medicare's creation, 96 percent of people 65 and older had hospital insurance and it could never be canceled by law. This was a huge boon for the country and it's still a boon today. And frankly, it should be expanded uh, to people below 65. In my opinion, it ought to uh, be expanded to everyone. But the program in and of itself, as we know it, is hugely successful. Back in 2010, 
um, a fact check uh, back during the Obamacare fight, a fact check uh, about what people were saying prior to the passage of Medicare uh, led people to take a look at it. And uh, some of the details uh, back in uh, in 2009, just nine percent of seniors were in poverty back in 2009. But prior to Medicare, uh, back in, and the time frame we have to look at was 1959, some 35% of elderly Americans were considered to be uh, in poverty. For 35%. In, by 2009, that was down to 9%. And that was due to both Medicare and Social, Social Security, which was also a wildly, which is also a wildly popular program. But so this was a 75% drop in Poverty and poverty rates for the elderly from the time that uh, Medicare was passed in 1965 up until 2009 when this uh, fact check was done. And yes, a lot of it had to do with Social Security and specifically the expansion of benefits during the 1970s. But during the Great Depression, before Social Security, at least half of all seniors, half of all seniors were living in poverty. So these two programs, Social Security, uh, uh, Medicare, just a great boon for the country. But of course, prior to their passage, prior to the passage of both, but specifically prior to the passage of Medicare, uh, it was it was Ronald Reagan. It was the great Republican hero, Ronald Reagan, who warned us, warned us about the menace, the menace of Medicare. And how this would be the end of America as we know it, how it would lead to socialized medicine, pretty much all of the exact arguments that you heard in the fight leading to uh, the passage of Obamacare in 2010. But just a reminder, just a reminder how wrong these people are, how often they are wrong and how often they sell the same BS to gullible chumps and suckers otherwise known as uh, the American people who happen to vote Republican. Here's just an idea. Here was Ronald Reagan back in 1961 warning how Medicare was going to be the end of America as we know it. Back in 1927, an American socialist, Norman Thomas, six times candidate for president on the Socialist Party ticket, said the American people would never vote for socialism. But he said, under the name of liberalism, the American people will adopt every fragment of the socialist yeah. program. He never made that. He never said that. Completely made up. That was a completely phony uh, remark from Ronald Reagan. I know you'll be uh, shocked to learn that Republicans are making phony arguments and making up quotes from people. But, yeah, uh, this guy, uh, Norman uh, Thomas, uh, never actually said what Ronald Reagan said he said. OK, let's continue with the rest of Ronald Reagan's lies here. I mean, uh, Ronald Reagan warning about the menace of Medicare. But at the moment, I'd like to talk about another way, because this threat is with us and at the moment is more imminent. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Write those letters now, call your friends, and tell them to write them. If you don't, this program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> and behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known oh, it in this country. Invade every Until area. one day, as Norman Thomas said, we will awake to find that we have socialism. And if you don't do this, and if I don't do it, one of these days, you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children, what it once was like in America when men were free. 
Yes, when men were free. When men and women were free to die because they couldn't afford uh, health care. And their after, families after were the free to go bankrupt trying yeah, to care for them. That's right. And that was, uh, of course, Ronald Reagan back in 1961 warning about the dangers, the menace, the, the threat to freedom. That was Medicare, and he was hired by the American Medical Association to do it. And at the time, they had actually they printed records. These were LPs that they sent out around the country called Ronald Reagan Speaks Out Against Socialized Medicine. So that's what, uh, that's what the American Medical Association has been doing for years and years and years. They're still doing it, and Republicans are still doing their bidding, and chumps and suckers and stooges who watch Fox News are still falling for it. But in any event, just wanted to point out the 50th anniversary of this wildly successful program that nobody, Republican or Democrat, wants to get rid of, at least no sane uh, person wants to get rid of, that was supposed to take away all of our freedoms as we know it back in uh, 1961. Um, okay, uh, before we get to the break here, uh, some quick politics. We've got some new numbers in now, some new uh, polling in. Normally, I don't care about polling, but in this case, it's really fun polling. Uh, Quinnipiac University released a poll on Thursday showing that 20% of registered Republican voters, 20% say they would vote for Donald Trump in the Republican primary. With just uh, 13% favoring Governor Scott Walker and just 10% choosing former Governor Jeb Bush. So he's got, Bush is really kind of going over a cliff here. But in any event, twice as many, twice as many Republican voters would vote for uh, Donald Trump in the Republican pri uh, primary than uh, Jeb Bush. Trump, however, also dominates the what they call the no way list. 30% of Republican voters say they would never, never vote for Trump. In the presidential primary, uh, he leads that pack. 15% say they would never vote for Governor Chris Christie. 14% say they would not vote for Bush. So both Trump and Bush show up on the uh, favorite and the least favorite list on the Republican side. Not very schizophrenic, are they? And although Trump fared well against his primary opponents, voters choose Democratic candidates over Trump. Among registered voters, according to this Quinnipiac poll, Trump trails uh, Hillary Clinton by 12 points. He trails Vice President Joe Biden by 12 points. Vice President Joe Biden is not even running. He also, by the way, trails Senator Bernie Sanders by eight points. So uh, so there you go. Uh, Trump is beating all the Republicans and all of the Democrats are beating Trump. And by the way. Uh, this is how well Trump is doing and how poorly Jeb Bush is doing. A poll out also today from the St. Petersburg Times finds that uh, Donald Trump has 26% of the vote in Florida. Jeb Bush, who's from Florida, well, at least was the two-time uh, governor, two-term governor of Florida, he only gets 20% in Florida. Wait, you mean... Trump beats Jeb Bush Correct. in Jeb Bush's home state Correct. of Florida. Twenty six kills him. Twenty six to twenty percent in Florida. Scott Walker uh, is in third place down in Florida with twelve percent, which means Marco Rubio, the sitting senator from Florida right now, who is also running for president, he doesn't even crack ten percent. He's got nine point seven percent down there in Florida. Trump is beating the two Florida candidates in. Florida. Wow. Just amazing. 
Uh, and the Republicans still don't know what the hell to do about it. Well, you know what? Maybe they can do this. They can wait. They could sit around and wait for the New York Times to come out with a hit piece on uh, Democrats that will help them out or a hit piece on Donald Trump that will help them out because the New York Times just loves screwing up stories. The more important the stories, the more they love screwing them up and then screwing up the uh, corrections to those stories. All of that and more is straight ahead. We'll be back with Eric Bullert and the story of the latest screw-up at the New York Times. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Come gather around, people, wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing No but but they aren't changing. That's the problem. They're not changing. At least the New York Times. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, I can't I can't even believe we have to tell this uh, seemingly same story all over again. So I'll I'll, I'll just give you the, the the quick intro here to where we're going and we will be joined by Eric Bullert to talk about all of this uh, fine mess momentarily. Okay, I, I don't even need to go, I don't think, into details about how the New York Times screwed up the reporting leading into the Iraq war. Now, some people say they may have had a, a reason for doing that. I'm, I'm not even getting into that issue at this point. The fact is, the New York Times was wrong time and time again, and uh, as they helped lead the drumbeat to war in Iraq in uh, back in uh, 2002, 2003, most notably by now former New York Times reporter Judith Miller, who, of course, was immediately scooped up by Fox News thereafter. But uh, she got the story wrong uh, time and time again. She claims, when it came to Iraq, that, uh, quote, I was wrong because my sources were wrong. In other words, all she's saying is, hey, she reported what her sources, her highly placed sources in the government were saying, and that that is not wrong. Because she's a reporter, she was reporting on what the sources were saying. And clearly, the way the New York Times covered that helped rush this country into a completely unnecessary uh, and horrible war, and the, the consequences for which we are still facing today. 
Then move the clock forward to this phony attack. You may remember this as well. The uh, the, the, the James O'Keefe, this right wing activist who pretends to be a journalist, his his attack on Acorn, the uh, four decade old community organization uh, that helped low and middle income families uh, get into houses, buy houses, take out housing loans. And uh, I would argue, most importantly, register millions of low- and middle-income Americans to vote, to participate in their own democracy. And what O'Keefe did was completely smeared this organization by making pretend videotapes, uh, fake videotapes. I mean, they were actual videotapes, but they completely edited them out of sequence. They uh, made them appear to be something that they were not, and most notably... It it was made to appear that uh, James O'Keefe was dressed as this skinny, white, uh, 70s-era blaxploitation pimp, but the people who worked at Acorn were so stupid, they believed that he was actually a pimp trying to help his girlfriend. uh, It was all nonsense. It was stuff and nonsense. And we showed that at Brad Blog in great detail when it happened. And the problem is the New York Times completely misreported it. They reported James O'Keefe as going into these acorn offices in this pimp outfit. These workers were falling for the scam. Look how stupid they are. This group needs to be defunded. And in fact, they were defunded. They were put out of business. Thanks in no small part to the New York Times reporting on James O'Keefe, which was completely and utterly false. Among the mistakes that they made, they said that uh, uh, James O'Keefe dressed up as a pimp while he was in these offices. No, he never did. And at bradblog.com, I went through great lengths to point that out to the New York Times. And at the time, their public editor, a guy at that point by the name of Clark Hoyt, said uh, he tried to defend the paper instead of looking into the real problem. He said, quote, the story says O'Keefe dressed up as a pimp and trained his hidden camera on acorn counselors. It doesn't say he did those two things at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> this they just misreported it dozens of times and they fought me on it when I showed the evidence that they were wrong eventually eventually they corrected some of those uh, just blatantly wrong stories but it took six months and as I said it put that community organization completely out of business all right now we move the clock to the latest uh, failure at the New York Times. Rachel Maddow reported it this way this week on The Rachel Maddow Show. So this was the bombshell headline. Quote, criminal inquiry sought in Hillary Clinton's use of email. And when you look at it, it looks very much like someone is seeking a criminal inquiry into Hillary Clinton's actions, into Hillary Clinton herself. Several hours after the New York Times published that super inflammatory headline and story, they quietly and without notice changed the first few sentences of the story. In the second iteration, there was no investigation into Hillary Clinton herself. It was an investigation into whether information was mishandled by someone, but not her. A little while later, they started issuing the first in what would end up being a string of corrections. Quote, an earlier version of this article and an earlier headline using information from senior government officials misstated the nature of the referral to the Justice Department regarding Hillary Clinton's personal email account. The referral did not specifically request an investigation into Mrs. Clinton. So that was the first correction. Then there was the second correction, issued the following day. It was even more of a a, a jaw-hitting-the-floor discovery. 
Turns out that possible criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton, not only was it not a criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton, uh, there was no criminal investigation, period. Those senior government officials, whoever they are, uh, they, were, they were wrong about that. There was no criminal referral. So within a couple of days, the story goes from being about how Hillary Clinton is the subject of a criminal inquiry by the Justice Department to Hillary Clinton is not the subject of any criminal inquiry to there is no criminal inquiry. So the story was right, except it was completely wrong. Uh, here to talk about uh, this entire fine mess is Eric Bollert, senior fellow at Media Matters for America, author of Bloggers on the Bus, How the Internet Changes Politics and the Press, and Lapdogs, How the Press Rolled Over for George W. Bush. Uh, Eric Bollert, my friend, welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, Brad, thanks for having me. Sure. So, okay, so uh, j- just to set the table here, first, what did the New York Times originally report? What was the claim about the story, about Hillary Clinton's email? Uh, and, and then we can discuss how they how the paper changed it and how they dealt with that change and, and what they should have done in the first place and, and much more. Yeah, so the original article claimed that two inspector generals uh, had passed along criminal referrals to um, suggesting that they thought there should be a criminal investigation in terms of into mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton and how she used her private email. And this is basically uh, a dream come true for the Republican Party ever since March when the New York Times first reported on the private email. The, always the Republican mantra, the fantasy, was that there was, criminal, there was criminality involved, just like the Republicans used to fantasize about Bill and Hillary Clinton being criminals during the 90s mm-hmm. and launched countless investigations that, that never proved it. We were back to square one. She had done something illegal. Not only was she arrogant, not only was she secretive, she broke the law. Criminal investigations in D.C. means subpoenas, depositions. It, it's a nightmare if you're trying to run for president uh, and, and you've got a federal criminal investigation. Uh, so that's, there was dancing at the, in sort of dancing in the halls at the RNC late Thursday night last week when the story went up. Um, so criminal investigation, Hillary is, the, Hillary is the target. And as you just explained, neither one of those were true. She was never the target. There is no criminal investigation. What there is is this sort of, frankly, low-level bureaucratic back and forth. There was a FOIA request for these documents. FOIA officials and the State Department were, are, are kind of going back and forth. That's Freedom, in freedom of, of Information Act. Yeah, Freedom of to, Information yeah. Act. Uh, they're now going back and looking at what a former State Department official, Hillary Clinton, what information she had on her emails, uh, some of the information that was released during the FOIA request, someone at the State Department decided that might have been classified, therefore it should retroactively be classified. It was never classified when it was sent, meaning, the sto- as I'm describing it, mm-hmm. I'm so bored I can't even talk about <laughs> it, which is why it never would have ended up on the front page of the New York Times. It's, a, it's the ultimate inside beltway process, mm-hmm. hire a lawyer, lawyer story, if you care. It has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton being the target of a criminal investigation. So there were, again, two prongs to the story. Neither one of them were accurate. That's kind of how they got into trouble in the first place. Right. 
Well, it it, it listen. Uh, mistakes are made. Uh, people yeah. make mistakes. Reporters make mistakes. I understand that, but it seems like these mistakes were then compounded one after another after yeah. another. They made a change uh, without. Uh, is this true? W- without actually noting that they made a change, and it was a big yeah. change from the uh, yeah. criminal charges to non-criminal, right? Uh, well, the first change in the early hour uh, morning of uh, fr- last Friday morning, while everyone else was asleep, as you said, they changed the first few sentences, might have even changed the lead, to make it clear that Hillary herself was not the target, uh, but it was of, of this investigation. The investigation was about how information was handled. That was just changed, period. And so when I picked up my paper Friday morning, uh, the changes were not in my print edition because mm-hmm. it had already gone out. Um, so uh, that was the first. It was kind of a stealth. And, and my reading on it was, you know, they, they kind of wanted to just see if they could slide by. I didn't think they, they knew people would notice. But I think they still felt comfortable. Well, there's still a criminal investigation. <clears throat> We're still good here. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, we'll talk, we can argue with people about the, the language. Maybe we weren't right on the original, but I think they felt okay. I think they felt they could hold on. I think they felt like we don't have to blare a correction for crying out loud. Come on, we just, you know, we changed the language. Then around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock last Friday, <clears throat> Elijah Cummings, the lead Democrat on the Benghazi Committee, where the suspicion is all this information came from on the Republican side, said, I talked to these inspector generals yesterday. They assured me not only was there not an investigation on Hillary Clinton, there is no criminal investigation. Within hours, the State Department, Justice Department confirmed the same thing. So the Times was clinging to this branch that there was still a criminal investigation. Uh, And then that was gone, and then they just got thrown into the river. Uh, But incredibly, it wasn't until Saturday that they changed the headline and removed the criminality. Uh, that, it's just amazing to me. Now, listen, I, as I said, mistakes are made in journalism. I understand that. But these mistakes, at least the ones that I underscored uh, at the top here, Iraq and then ACORN and now this, uh, th- they always seem to be very, very consequential mistakes over yeah. at the New York and, Times. And, 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 and who's the target always? Hmm. Right. Is it ever Jeb Bush? Is it ever the RNC? Is it ever the NRA? No. Well, that's what I wanted it's to ask. always progressive. Well, it's that's... always Democrats. It's always a Clinton. It's always an Obama. It's always a low-income uh, advocacy group. Where are these colossal screw-ups when the New York Times digs in deep and screws up about a right-wing mm-hmm. Republican organization? It doesn't happen because they know... You cannot make mistakes when you go after the NRA. You cannot make mistakes when you go after a Republican frontrunner. But they seem to be, look, this, uh, you know, the only good thing that's come of this is Margaret Sullivan, the public editor, has has talked to the editors and the reporters and and gave um, some insight into how this Mm -hmm. happened. This story all came together in hours on Thursday. You know, it was all very slapdash. They threw it up. They never called the Hill, uh, the Clinton campaign. They never called a Democrat, Elijah Cummings, who, uh, as, a head of the, as I mentioned in the Benghazi committee, who would have told him flat out, you're getting the story wrong. Here's the big picture. They never saw the indictment. They were relying on, quote, government officials, i.e., 
Trey Gowdy or someone on his staff in the Benghazi committee. They looked at the paperwork. They told the Times reporters over the phone, this is what it says, and they lied or misrepresented. What does Jonathan Carl think about all this? The people with a good memory, a year and a half ago, Jonathan Carl had this huge Benghazi scoop because someone in the Benghazi investigative up on the Hill mm-hmm. called him, said, I've seen the White House emails. You can't look at them. I'll tell you what they said. The White House tried to interfere with Benghazi. That was a huge scandal. And then a week later we found out, oh, Jonathan Carl's Republican sources lied to him. And that was That's Jonathan. not what the email said. Right. Uh, and that was uh, Jonathan Carl over at ABC News, uh, really seemingly falling for the same trick. So uh, as you point out, Eric Bullard, this happens time and time again, consequential errors. They always seem to affect somehow not Republicans, but Democrats or progressives, uh, progressive causes and so forth. Uh, is Is this... Is this political, as far as you know from the New York Times, or is this just sloppy journalism? Do you have any sense one way or another, Eric? Well, it's a combination, and I don't think they sit around and they say, how are we going to get Democrats? How are we going to carry the water for Republicans? It's built into the conscience. It's built into the culture. Uh, And so I think, um, again, there's a pattern here. Do you think the New York Times would have thrown up uh, kind of a half-hearted reported piece uh, on, on midnight and put it on the front page mm-hmm. suggesting Jeb Bush was under criminal indictment and then find out 90 minutes later none of it was right and they never called the Jeb, uh, the Bush campaign and they never called anyone else. It, to me, it's inconceivable. Well, it, uh, but if it's the Clintons, throw it up there, see what happens. We're going <laughs> to get huge traffic. Yeah, and Margaret Sullivan, uh, the public editor, you cited, and thankfully she has come in. She she actually, I think, is fantastic, uh, replacing uh, Clark Hoyt, who was terrible. And I, I, as I should have mentioned in the opening, he was actually depicted by Tom Tomorrow as a weasel. Uh, the cartoonist Tom Tomorrow for that quote that he said about O'Keefe in trying to defend the paper uh, to me at uh, at Bradblog.com when we called him out. But uh, Margaret Sullivan said uh, that that her sense was in interviewing these people, uh, the, the reporters, I should say, interviewing the reporters and the editors, that in fact uh, final confirmation came from the same person more than once. In other words, they wouldn't discuss who their sources were, but they went back to their... Uh, she, they told her that yes. they went back to the sources and reconfirmed, but it looks like they went back to the same person over and over again, and he said, yes, seriously, that is, there's a criminal referral. And if you, and everyone who's seen all the president's men know Woodward and Bernstein, Ben Bradley, big Watergate stories, they needed to have three sources. And here we are, the New York Times reporters, editors saying, oh, we sent them back time and again to check it. They kept checking with the same person. Right. Did they think the same person was going to, 20 minutes later, oh, no, oh, I'm sorry, I got it all wrong, never mind. You can't check the same information with the same person on the same night and think they're going to change their mind. That's why you get different sources. That's why you, it's never a good idea to act as stenographers for partisan sources on Capitol Hill were obsessed with the Clintons. I mean, come on, what what you know, what result do you think you're going to get? What? Go back to March when the New York Times broke their big, you know, they got credit for breaking the big Hillary has a private email story. 
same reporter, same instant, uh, uh, same example, high up in that piece, and they, they hung this story on the hook that there might be criminality involved. There was none, and they had to walk that back days later. But that's what they hang everything on. They're criminals, they're criminals, they're criminals. Yeah, there is this obsession, and we should say it's not just with the New York Times, it's with the corporate media at large. And uh, listen, I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton, I'm no fan of Bill Clinton, uh, but I am a fan of fairness in reporting and get the story right. That's all I'm asking. And once you get it wrong... Cop to what you did. You quoted in your coverage of this, Eric Bullard over Media Matters, uh, headline New York Times echoes Judith Miller's Iraq war excuse by blaming sources, not reporters. You point out that in 2005, Judith Miller about Iraq said I was wrong because my sources were wrong. And now this time, this week, the New York Times deputy executive editor, Matt Purdy, about this story said... We got it wrong because our very good sources had it wrong. A, they weren't good sources, apparently, because <laughs> they were wrong. But B, you also had the executive editor, Dean Baquette, saying you had the government confirming that it was a criminal referral. I'm not sure what they could have done differently on that. The government wasn't confirming anything. This was an unnamed government source a government official theoretically someone inside the government that's not the government right i mean look if you're in dc how many people work for the government 20 30 40 thousand people one of them calls you up and says i got a hot scoop and then the executive editor is good editor is going to turn around and say the government confirmed that come on it wasn't it, that's a very good point and uh, you know i think probably two percent of readers picked up on that um and and so right judith miller look I'm a Pulitzer Prize-winning, uh, uh, you know, journalist. And uh, back in uh, 2003, 2004, she said, oh, "I used all the same sources I've always used. I want to, uh, you know, I want a Pulitzer Prize. They were my sources for that book. They were my sources for Iraq. But what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, basically, it was a shoulder shrug. Her sources just happened to get everything wrong about the Iraq War. Uh, and now we fast forward." And we have uh, the, the key editors of the New York Times shrugging their shoulders and saying, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And, and we should say this No one is, else fell for this story. Yes, everybody else. Yeah, well, you're right. And, and uh, we should say this matters because it is the paper of record. Exactly. You know, this is not just some, uh, you know, Ohio paper getting a story wrong. This is right. for they history. The tone. Yeah. They set the tone and their obsession, their institutional antagonism for the Clintons. Uh, sets the tone. And look, you know, you made a good point. You know, you might not be a fan of Hillary, might not be a fan of Bill, but, you know, Democrats and progressives cannot, you know, just because people might not like the Clintons, and I, I totally get that, if you sit back and you let the corporate media literally try to sabotage the campaign of the Democratic frontrunner, that's not okay. And you, people cannot allow, you know, kind of our side to have our front-runner candidates. They did it to Al Gore in 2000, and, and, you know, they're doing it, they're trying to do it again now. They don't decide who our candidate is, the voters do, and they shouldn't be out there, you know, recklessly trying to undermine candidates just because they don't like them, just because Maureen Dowd has an obsession with Bill Clinton's sex life. <laughs> well, I've, I've got just a minute or two left here, Eric Bullard. I'm, uh, just to sort of move things forward a, a bit, 
you know, I'm I'm very careful at Bradblog.com, and I've got you know no resources even comparable to what New York Times has. But when it comes to reporting on sources whose name I cannot use, if I cannot put their name out there, uh, you know, except in absolutely extraordinary circumstances where you've got maybe breaking news that's going on right now or trying to figure something out. Other than that. If I can't use their name, I need something t- that I can present to readers s- to independently verify this information. And right. especially when we're dealing with blockbuster stories like criminal investigations of a, a you know the front-running uh, Democratic president, uh, Democratic uh, not, uh, candidate for president of the United States. Um, I, you know, I'm left to wonder: Does Bradblog have higher editorial and journalistic <laughs> standards than the New York Times? I think we might, but what should they have done? How is there too much reliance on unnamed sources? And at this point, should they name the source who they claim misled them? Right. Right. They're never going to. But yes, there's absolutely uh, a journalistic guideline. If a source absolutely burns you. You no longer are held to the anonymity guarantee that you gave that person. Uh, but, you, you know, we rarely see it happen. And who knows? And I said my piece, you know, whoever these sources were, every New York Times reporter should be forbidden from using them. And they certainly should be forbidden from ever giving these sources anonymity to we, again. But there's no indication that anyone inside the Times is, you know, is doing anything other than kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, what else can we do? There are lots of things you, to do, you can do. And again, as we talked about, you know, we're at the age where reporters aren't seeing documents, they aren't seeing emails. They're, you know, partisan sources are describing the contents over the phone, and they're lying to reporters again and again. Specifically, you know, these uh, Republican obsessive sources um, fixated on Benghazi, and now Benghazi has just morphed into Hillary Clinton's emails. You know, it's now a government-run investigation. Um, so, my gosh, how many times do you have to be burned before, you know, and Margaret Sullivan said it best, you know, in her piece, what they should have done, they should have slowed down. This is the bizarre part. This was an exclusive. This was given to them. Why could you not wait 12 more hours Call up three more people. Right. Call up the Hillary Clinton's team. Call up Democrats on the Hill. What's the rush? It was given to you on a platter. What a this, de- is, this is why I said the other night, this is just awful journalism. It, it, it's just, it's a debacle. And uh, before I let you go, Eric Bullard, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, how, how many times do these people have to get burned before they learn anything? I, I took a pass on covering, at least for now. Uh, this latest uh, hit video by these right wingers, this hit video against Planned Parenthood, right, because right. frankly, you know what? When I when I outed uh, O'Keefe as a liar and Breitbart as a liar about the uh, the Acorn thing, it right. wasn't because I had anything against them. It was because I did not want the media to fall for these scams. That was right. my interest. I don't give a damn about those guys. The the. Planned Parenthood video followed the exact same playbook, and I've been looking the other way because I just can't stand to deal with it again. I know you (laughs) have looked at it. Uh, Have the corporate media, has the corporate media learned anything, uh, you know, given the past experience with O'Keefe and so forth, or are they falling for the same scam again this time around in this Planned Parenthood? I I think they're really falling for the same scam. These videos aren't nearly as potent. The first one kind of included some blockbuster information, but then, as Media Matters pointed out, all the context was missing. They've released a video today. I mean, it's barely even worth watching. 
but no, but again, so there isn't the, the political furor that Acorn had because they were able to release video after video. But my gosh, the New York Times, uh, you know, they've done four or five articles on these videos. They did two on the front page. And each time, you know, they say the videos show, the, you know, the activists show the videos claim the, you know, Planned Parenthood is selling body parts for profit. And then the next paragraph, it says Planned Parenthood says they don't. This is fetal tissue research, and they're only taking processing fees. And then that's it. Then the New York Times sort of throws up their hands and says, well, we can't decide. You try to figure it out. (laughs) It's in the video. It's in the video. Why are we doing this? He said, she said. So so to answer your question, uh, sadly, I think the press um, is always way too impressed with these these sort of BS videos that leave out all the context. Amazing. Um, and, yeah. And that's and that's the uh, the so-called liberal New York Times. Exactly. So it's exactly. just what a scam. What a scam the right-wingers have going and what a scam how the uh, Times falls for it over and over and over and plays into their hands. Uh, Eric Bollert, senior fellow at Media Matters for America. You should follow him on the Twitters, one of the liveliest uh, uh, feeds on the Twitters. You can find him at Eric Bollert over there. Eric, always great talking to you, sir. Thank you. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Very good. Bye-bye. Okay, quick break, and we're back with uh, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Yes, we are melting out here on the West Coast. I know you guys are melting out there on the East Coast as well. That's kind of rare that we're both melting, but it's never rare when Desi Doyen's around to report how the entire world is melting. Oh, yes, it's fun. Yes, it is fun. Uh, And uh, speaking of fun... Let's kick it our latest Green News Report. Well, if you thought you'd seen the last of those Kai activists, think again. They are back this time in Portland. Oregon activists suspend from a bridge to stop Arctic drilling. Yeah, oh my gosh, go. Like, no, fast, Dad, go. Wildfire season explodes across the West, while a new study finds wildfires are getting worse around the world. Plus... Then killed it with a weapon of some kind, and then uh, they severed the head as a trophy. The killing of Cecil the lion ignites a firestorm over big game trophy hunting. All of those firestorms and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. A nuclear Iran is going to be the least of our problems instead of everything else. Iranian nukes will be a break. From swimming through our climate change flooded cities, fighting Ebola zombies with our teeth, because we can't hold guns thanks to our iPhone shaped hand tumors. Hmm. Maybe I should get an Android phone. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a day or two ago, a U.S. senator from North Dakota claimed that during the August recess of Congress, Barack Obama was going to reject the Keystone XL pipeline. 
Was that senator making it up, or is there actually some basis in fact for that claim? Well, it looks like he was kind of making it up because the White House says they are going to make a decision, but probably not over the August recess. So this was just a matter of him ginning up his constituents before the August recess? That's kind of what it looks like. All right, but if Obama does reject it over the August recess, I expect you to apologize to that U.S. senator. Okay, I guess I will. But let's get on to the real news. In the U.S., the West is on fire with what is shaping up to be the worst fire season on record. In the week or so since a fast-moving wildfire engulfed people's cars on a California highway, wildfires across the West have exploded due to record drought and record hot temperatures. In Alaska and across Canada, literally hundreds of wildfires are active. And in Alaska specifically, fires of all sizes have burned nearly 5 million acres, putting this year on track so far to be Alaska's worst fire season ever. At Melting Glacier National Park in Montana, it is peak tourist season, but a wildfire there has forced evacuations of campgrounds, with this family barely escaping. Oh my gosh, go. Go now, go. Like, no, fast, dad, go. Holy That video is absolutely amazing. It may not be clear on audio, but check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com to take a look at that amazing video as his family outran this fire in their car. Yeah, and now a groundbreaking new study from the U.S. Forest Service concludes that since 1979, global warming has increased the length of fire weather seasons across the planet by 20 percent. And it's also increased what the scientists call the planet's burnable areas. That has more than doubled over the same period of time. So both the areas have doubled and the length of time that the fire season actually goes on? Yeah. But 20 percent. That's a lot. Amazing. All of these wildfires are creating a self-reinforcing feedback loop. Global warming intensifies the wildfires. Wildfires, in turn, intensify global warming. When the trees burn, they're releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And now, scientists say the wildfires in Alaska are so intense, they're melting the permafrost, and that's releasing even more carbon. The persistent high temperatures are also killing salmon in rivers in the Pacific Northwest. Persistent high river temperatures that game officials say have already killed thousands of salmon this season alone. In Portland, Oregon, Greenpeace activists in climbing harnesses suspended themselves from a major bridge in a bid to protect the Arctic from shell oil. The aerial protest temporarily blocked a shell drilling ship from leaving Portland's harbor after repairs. Shell can't legally proceed with drilling in the Arctic until that ship is on site. And although they won't be able to stop the drilling altogether, the protesters say every delay buys the Arctic some time. And what makes you think Shell cares about doing things legally, Why start now? Finally, growing outrage around the world after an American dentist killed a famous lion in Africa. The lion, named Cecil, was a major tourist draw in Zimbabwe, and officials say the dentist and his hunting guides illegally lured Cecil, a protected lion fitted with a research collar, outside of the safety of his National Park refuge boundaries. The dentist paid over $50,000 for the treat and says he regrets killing Cecil, and now he faces potential criminal charges. The killing has renewed debate over the ethics of big game trophy hunts as a wildlife conservation tool, according to George Whitmire, a conservation biologist at Colorado State University on KPFK Radio. There's recognition that this is a problem and and this is a particularly poignant example of it that's really struck a chord with the the public. Not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, What a terrible story. 
For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh, brother. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. I can't blame you for the news, can I? <laughs> no, or, no, please don't. You don't create the news. You just report it. Right. Uh, well done. Thank you very much, uh, Desi Doyen, our producer. My thanks as well today to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and of course to my guest, Eric Bollert of Media Matters. All right, until we meet again, if you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over on iTunes, where we hope you will give us a good review, make it a little bit easier for everyone else to find the uh, to find the Bradcast. And you can and should follow us on the Twitters as well. We are the Brad Blog. If you're old school and like to send email, you can do that. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And yes, I do read them when they come in eagerly. All right. Until we meet again, then you can always find me over at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.